Feel free to carry on your conversations uh, over coffee at the end of the service. Uh, that would be brilliant. So I wanted to uh, start our sermon this morning by just saying a thank you. I wanted to say thank you so much to all the people who emailed me uh, this week and the team. Uh, Some weeks at church, you uh, just have the privilege of watching God do amazing things. And uh, after last Sunday's service, I got a whole bunch of emails from people saying everything from like, wow, I just feel like I want to commit my life to Jesus for the first time, through to like, I've been out of Christian community for a long time, and I really want to plug back into the life of a local church. Um, I really want to rededicate my life to Jesus. And so thank you just to all the people who sent emails. It's, It's amazing to see what God is doing in the life of our community. I'm just so um, amazed by that. And so we want to we carry on through Lent with this same kind of sense of intentionality to push into like, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this moment in history? And so we're going to do Lent a little bit differently. Before we get up to Easter, we're going to look together at the book of Jonah. Anyone an expert in the book of Jonah? If you are, it's probably because you watched it on VeggieTales, I'd imagine, some, something like that. Uh, Jonah is this kind of really interesting book, and uh, if you've never heard it before, it basically, here's a little, little synopsis for you. Um, it's about this prophet in the Old Testament of the Bible who is called by God to go and preach repentance to a city called Nineveh, um, but he doesn't want to go, Jonah, and so he runs very, very far away, as far away as he can possibly get to a place called Tarshish. He gets on a ship, um, and then after a while, there's this big storm that comes. He gets up in the water. He's swallowed by a big fish, uh, eventually spat up on the land, and then eventually gives up, and then he goes to the city. He preaches the worst sermon in the history of the world ever. The whole city repents and comes to faith. Right? That's kind of the version of Jonah that people remember. Um, and it's a kind of book that people therefore sort of struggle with. Like, what is the point of the book of Jonah? Why is it e- even there? It seems like the kind of thing that you use for small kids and you tell them stories like, you need to do what God tells you and you need to behave really well because if you don't behave really well, then you're going to get swallowed by a really big fish. Uh, I mean, and we have dark moments in our house. I'm occasionally with parenting. You know, I haven't used that exact line yet, but I'm kind of working on something like that. Um, but is there like more? Is there something else about Jonah? Is there something that we could know? Well, the good news is there is absolutely. There is so much that we can unpack together. Because like every other book in the Bible, it is there to teach us. It's to teach us about the mission of God, about the nature of God, about the character of God. And specifically in this case, it's here to teach us about our response to God, about the calling that he places on our life and whether or not we are prepared to join in with what he he has for us. And so I'm kind of excited by it. Um, This is a really interesting uh, book. I've never preached all the way through it, but I already know that God is going to have so much uh, that he wants to speak to us um, through it. So just a couple of little introductory questions. Um, So uh, where is the book of Jonah? If you've got your Bibles this morning, always good to know where it is. Well, it is just towards the end of the Old Testament. It is just after the book of Obadiah, that book that you know extremely well off by heart. Uh, And it's just before the book of Micah, that book that you know exactly one verse out of uh, in the Old Testament of the Bible. Um, What is 
what type of book uh, is the book of Jonah? Well, good question. Thank you for asking. Uh, the book of, of Jonah is a really interesting and unique book in the Bible. You know that um, if you've been around churches for a while, you know that the Bible is not one thing. It's not one book. It's actually a collection of different books written over a whole period of history by different authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, all given to teach us and train us and rebuke us and correct us and help us in our, in our Christian lives. But they're quite different. Right? Some, of the, some of the books of the Bible are uh, history or narrative Books like Exodus, which tell us like it was like this, and this happened, and then that happened, and this is what God did, and this is how the people responded. There are other books of the Bible that are like poetry. Um, I'm, I would be a terrible poet if I um, uh, was ever had to try and do that, because if you've ever received an email from me, like I'm, I'm for facts. That's how I kind of work. My emails are bullet points. Like, but poets, they don't write like that. They don't write specifically trying to accurately document details. They speak with symbolism. They speak with emotion. They speak trying to give figurative language and symbolic kind of things. Um, you know that some of the Bible is wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs. We did it recently. And the book of Proverbs is there to help us be trained in how to live with wise lives in the world that we live in. Uh, some of the books in the Bible are prophecy. Again, like very symbolic and beautiful, but they speak of rebuke or a correction over a particular time or people, but also they look forward with this beautiful figurative language to what God is going to do in the future. You know, there are the books of the Bible, like the Gospels, which are these eyewitness accounts of who Jesus was and what he did. There are the epistles, the pastoral letters to the early churches, like this is how you're going to follow Jesus. And in fact, there are loads of different types, even beyond that. Now, that's important when we come to Jonah because you need to know that when you read a book of the Bible, you've got to figure out firstly what it is that you're reading. Like you need to understand what, what was meant here. You know that the Bible wasn't actually written in the NIV translation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Like that wasn't where it came from. It came over a period of history and it made words can mean different things to original audiences, even to how we understand them today. And so it's really important that when, whenever we read the Bible that we go a bit deep, that we do a little bit of digging to figure out what was meant. Now, that really matters in the book of Jonah because Jonah is a really interesting and kind of unique book. It's actually quite difficult to categorize the book of Jonah. So the book of Jonah starts like this, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And immediately, right, now you're thinking, what kind of book is this? What are you immediately thinking from verse 1? It must be a book of? History. Nope. Oh, sorry, go on then. Uh, there were loads of answers there. <laughs> Prophecy, right? That sounds like the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Right? The problem is, this is a prophetic book like no other book in, in the Old Testament, right? Because most of the prophetic books in, in the Old Testament, all of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, they're about the prophecy. It's not about the person, it's about the thing that the person comes to bring and the specific message that God wants to deliver to his people. We don't actually learn very much at all about the prophetic message that God wants to bring through the prophet Jonah. The book of Jonah is about Jonah, so then people go, okay, well, this must be a historical book. This must be about narrative, as someone cleverly said over there, because we're going through a historic account of what happened. But there are some kind of problems to that, even though a lot of biblical scholars will go with the fact that this is a historical book. And the problem is primarily that there isn't a lot of history in it. There isn't a lot of details. Normally, you would expect like dates and names of people. 
But in the book of Jonah, even the king of Nineveh, who was like probably the most important person in the, that part of history at that time, is not even named. There are almost no other names, no other details that come through the book of Jonah. And so people have kind of asked the question, well, is this more than, is this more like a parable? If you remember like two weeks ago, we looked at one of Jesus's parables, where Jesus told this parable about the emperor who was Caesar and his servant who owed him a great debt. Now, the emperor was a real person, right? His servant could well have been a real person. But the point of a parable is not whether or not like it happened in the exact moment in history and time and like that. The point is more like, what is it really supposed to be about? Now, bear with me a minute, because you're going like, hold on, what, what does that mean for us? Well, what I want you to know is it doesn't matter whether you believe in miracles or not as to whether or not you might call this um, a parable. I believe in miracles. I see miracles all the time. I, I, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. It's a pretty amazing miracle for somebody to rise from the dead. But there are a few reasons, I think, which why you might want to consider that the book of Jonah could be a, a parable. And, and they're this. Number one, there are not a lot of details, as I said. No dates, no names at all in the book to help us to understand it as historical. The second reason is that the story has so much clever, interesting, repetitive, exaggerated language in it. So um, it's exaggerated to make a point. The word huge appears in the book of Jonah 15 times, which is cool, right? It says, it, it says that there was a huge storm and a huge whale and a huge problem. It goes on and on and on using that word. Um, it says in the book of Jonah that it took three days to cross over a city. Like there's no city in, the, in, the, in that time, which would have taken three days to, to cross. It says that when he was invited to go to one place, as we'll look at in a minute, which is a, quite a nearby place, instead what he does is he flees to the other end of the world, which is in modern-day Spain. The third reason is that if you know a little bit of uh, linguistic stuff, you'll know that the language in Jonah is fantastically funny. Like, it's brilliant. It's like an SNL skit. If from, a, from a different era. Right? It's, it is full of satire, it's full of wit, it's full of irony, it's full of sarcasm. Like Everything's upside down in the book of Jonah. The good guy turns out to be bad. The bad guys repent to the worst sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Like Even the name's ironic. They mean like really funny things if you un- understand them. So, right, what do we do? Well, you can go to the pub. And you can happily go and wrestle and read and debate whether or not this is a parable or whether or not this actually happened. As I say, it doesn't matter. It's not to do with miracles or not to do with miracles. But the good news is that either way, the message of Jonah is exactly the same. The reason the book of Jonah is created is exactly the same, which is that Jonah is a representative character. He is someone there like a mirror to our lives to show us the kind of ways that we self-sabotage our relationship with God. Anyone good at self-sabotage? Just occasionally, like you know what's right, you know what you're supposed to do, and then you do the completely the opposite thing. Well, that's, that's what Jonah does. He does exactly what he's not supposed to do. And so over these next weeks through Lent, we're going to be brave. And I hope you'll come with me on the adventure. And we're going to look courageously and ask the Holy Spirit to identify those kind of ways that where God wants to do something, he wants us to call us into things that maybe we, we run 
we hide, we get away. And so please don't be scared. This is not because God wants to condemn you or smite you, but it's actually because we believe that God loves us too much to leave us as he is, as we are. And he wants to change us and he wants to free us and he wants to heal us. And so that's the journey we're going to take. All right, you ready? That one person over there. Fantastic. Thank you for being ready. Um, We're going to have our reading this morning. Hannah's going to come and read the first part of Jonah. Jonah 1 to 3. 1, 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, amazing Bible that you've given us, uh, which describes your nature and your character so well. And as we jump into it, as we dive deep into the book of Jonah these next weeks, um, Lord, may we, may we see something uh, of ourselves, um, but through that, may we find healing and restoration and new life um, and new beginnings, we pray in your name. Um, amen. So the book of Jonah starts like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And the original audience would have done this. Oh my goodness, Jonah. Jonah. Jonah was a really well-known guy in that part of ancient history. He first turns up actually in the book of Two Kings as one of the worst prophets that Israel ever gets. In a time in Israel's history when they have an awful king, probably the worst of all the kings that they ever get, everyone is thinking this is going really badly and Jonah turns up as this prophet and he prophesies favor and the favor of the Lord over this king. In fact, it's such a bad prophecy that later on in the book of Amos, he has to come along and reverse publicly the prophecy that Jonah has brought. Jonah was this kind of like slightly laughing stock in, in, in Jewish culture because he just was unfaithful, he was badly behaved, he was grumpy, and he did things that were not respected in their community. But yeah, even though this is kind of who Jonah is, and by the way, it says Jonah, which means dove, and it says son of Amittai, which means son of faithfulness, which Jonah definitely was not. Even though that's true, then God says through him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And the audience would have gone like, what? Nineveh? Nineveh is the worst place in the world. If you were an Israelite of that time, you would have known all about the Ninevites because they were the people who came in and plundered the tribes of Israel. They raped and they pillaged and they skinned the leaders alive. They took everything they wanted. Like they were hated, they were enemies, they were awful. And yet this is who God wants to send his people to, the very epicenter of darkness, of evil and evil. But of course, the point is, and the point that we're all, trying to wrestle with this morning is that God is always committed to using his people to bring light into the darkest places. That's the point. God is always committed to using his people to bring light into the darkest places. He could have said, oh my goodness, like Nineveh, best thing that we can do with Nineveh, wipe it off the face 
of the world. Like, just get rid of it, because it's all bad. Nothing's good is going to come out of it. Let's just get rid of it. But God doesn't do that. He's loving. He's kind. He's gracious. He's got plans for Nineveh. He could have then said, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going like, to send something powerful to transform the city of Nineveh. So what I'm going to do, because it's such a big task, is I'm going to go myself. Maybe like a cloud of fire or some plagues like he'd done in other points in the Old Testament. But God doesn't even do that. What does he do? He sends the most unlikely person in the culture of that time to bring his message of salvation. And that's what you need to know, is that that's what God always does. God generally doesn't turn up in your street or your neighborhood, or your school, or your college, or your workplace, and go like, here I am, pillar of fire. We're going to sort those people out of the water cooler or on the Zoom meeting. That's not how God works. God sends his people. He sends you and me. He says, I'm going to use you because I've got plans for your life. Like, I've got purpose for your life. If you're prepared to get involved in my story, I can do things with you that you can't even ask or imagine. It's going to be absolutely fantastic, but we're going to do this together. You're on my team. And I consider that an incredible privilege. That's why I actually love being a pastor, because actually I get to see the evidence of people giving their whole lives to Jesus and going like, I'm all in for whatever you want, and then getting to see lives transform, communities transform. I think it's an incredible joy that God could pick anybody in the world, and yet he picks people like Jonah and me and you and, every, and everybody else. God is committed to using his people to do his plans, to fulfill what he wants to happen on the world, and he'll never give up doing that. Like Jonah was not an all-star prophet. He was a complete mess. And no matter how bad things get, God doesn't give up on Jonah. And here's the thing, God never gives up on you either. Like how easy is it to come into a church or any other time, like, oh yeah, God, you know, I know you can use that kind of person, you know the confident ones, or the tall ones, or the beautiful ones, or the people with fantastic British accents ones, or, you know, whatever. You can use those ones, but, you know, not me. You know, in fact, even if those people in that church knew what I'd really done, they'd just kick me out the door. Like, God, you could use all of those kinds of people, but there's no way you can use me. But here's the thing, God never ruled Jonah out, and God never rules you out. The very qualifications that you have to be used by God are not because you're beautiful or smart or have a fantastic British accent or anything else. The only qualifications you have is God's grace and God's love at work in your life. And God's invitation to you is, will you come? Will you do it? Will you come to the places of darkness and brokenness and will you bring my light into those places? But it's so easy for us, isn't it, to go, well, I'm just too, I'm too broken just made too much of a mess. I'm too old. I'm too tired. I'm too, too whatever. But yet God says to you and me, like, I've got something. I want something to do with you. But then we kind of get to the next stage, which is it's one thing to hear the call of God, but actually it's a totally different thing to respond to it. Notice what Jonah does in verse three. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port, and after paying the fare, he went abroad and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And the audience would have gone, oh my goodness, of course he did. He ran. That's exactly what Jonah would have done. 
But you see, Jonah doesn't just do a little running. Jonah does a lot of running. Here's a little map to show you what it's like when the journey that Jonah took. Okay, so Jonah's over there, if you can see on the right-hand side of the map, and he's called to go to Nineveh, which is not that far. Uh, consider it maybe like here to San Francisco kind of thing. Go and preach repentance to San Francisco. Nothing against San Francisco, by the way. <laughs> but what does he do? He gets to the nearest port, maybe down to Long Beach, and he heads on the ship to Tarshish, which in that culture was the furthest known place in the world. It was the end of the Mediterranean. It was the beaches of Spain. It was the last known place before you got to the wild blue yonder, now known as the Atlantic Ocean, to which there was nothing beyond. It's like you and me saying, God's saying, right, you're going to go to San Francisco, and we go, no, I'm going to Long Beach, and then I'm getting on a, I'm getting on a container ship to the South Pole because I want to run as far away as you can. It was absolutely crazy what he did. He ran. But, but why, why did he run? Well, maybe two reasons that he ran. The first is because it was Nineveh. And Nineveh was a place of darkness. It was a place of brokenness. It was a place where people get skinned alive. And maybe Jonah was like, well, you can send me anywhere, God, but not there. Like, that is too far. That's too much. I, I don't want to go there. That's the epicenter of evil. Because, of course, what Jonah sees is the darkness and not the light that God wants to bring through salvation and healing and redemption. And I wonder if that's where we maybe see a little bit of Jonah in all of us. How easy is it to come to a place like this in the middle of worship when the Ellis Meister is firing up his guitar and we're like hands in the air and we're like, God, we'll do anything. We'll go anywhere. Like you, I'm, I'll go anywhere you want. You know, anything you want. I'm just an offering poured out to you. And then God says to us, okay, great. I want you to go there. And we go, uh-uh. <laughs> like, I think I ate too much cheese last night. That can't be the Lord can't be the Lord because the Lord would never call me to somewhere like that or that kind of person or that kind of place because that kind of place is inconvenient. That kind of person is, is painful. What if I go there, Lord, and I get hurt or it costs me? Or what if it's, it, it, I look stupid when I speak about you there? Or what if I go there and I commit to be there and I miss episode four? Like I can't, I can't do it. And so what do we do? We go like, that. God wouldn't do that. God would never send me there because God loves me too. And it strikes me, and I say this not in any way wishing to aim this at any one person other than myself, is that I think in our culture, in our generation, we are unbelievably addicted to some stuff. We are addicted to comfort. We are addicted to security. We're like, God, I'll go anywhere. And God says, right, brilliantly, come over here to this person who is hurting and broken and a bit weird and awkward. And we're like, no, thank you. Like, I'm up for Netflix kind of level of calling, but not that level of calling. Or, or God says, well, I, I really want to use you to bring like salvation in this area where people are struggling and addicted and there's pain and, and things are going wrong. And we're like, well, I don't know if that's safe. So I think I'll stay over here. And, and, then, and then God says, Actually, I, want, I want you to commit. I want all of you. I want you to go all in with your brothers and sisters. I want you to clear the decks. I want, to have my, I want you to give me my, my best. And we go, well, that's okay, God. But like FOMO, right? FOMO's real. And, and what if I miss out? Like what if I say yes to that and then I don't get to do that thing with my friends that I really want to do? Like, that's not convenient anymore. So actually, I don't want to do that. 
But I believe that God's call is like, will you go? Will you go? Will we go into the places of darkness? I just want to let you into a secret. Like, I love that we've got a new building, right? I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing primarily because it puts us in the heart of the city. I think it's amazing because it gives us a base where we can reach out to the communities around. But I've got to tell you the danger. The danger is, is that we go to a new building and we make it really comfortable and fantastic and we upgrade the level of our coffee and donuts and we eventually get rid of the pews and put really comfortable seats and we all hide inside it and we go, this is amazing. Right? And the Lord says, like, well, okay, brilliant, the city of Pasadena, and we have no connection with the Pasadena other than because we've just put these incredibly big old walls around us. That's the danger. And that's what I've been wrestling and praying with. I'm like, Lord, we cannot go if that's what it's going to look like. Because God's power in our life is almost certain to take us to Nineveh. God's power in your life is almost certain to take you to a place or a people who are suffering and broken. We cannot say that's too uncomfortable, it's too messy, it's too painful, it's too challenging, it's too time-consuming, it's too inconvenient. We can't do it because God has better things. Because he's just going, I just want one. Will you go and through you can we see the world transform? Now the cool thing is, and I don't want this to sound really negative because I already see this in great places. Whenever I see someone go like, we're going to go out and pray for people on the streets, and we heard that story a couple of weeks ago of, of how that's beginning to happen in our community. Whenever I hear people giving up like their working day to go and work in places like with homelessness, with stars or with door of hope or down on skid row. Whenever I hear people say like, in my workplace, I'm there to bring the good news of Jesus. And so on the Zoom meeting or on the water cooler, I'm, I'm gonna go and share my faith. Or people who are mentoring our young people, people who are brave enough to invite their friends to come to the Alpha Course. Like, I'm like, that's it. We're seeing it. And that's the kingdom of God all around us. I think William Booth, if you know that story of William Booth, he was one of these guys. And William Booth was born in, in the early uh, 1800s in a place called Nottingham in the middle of England in a lot of deprivation, actually a very poor family. But William Booth went on to uh, become a Methodist minister and he moved to London. And when he moved to London, he saw the deprivation of what was going on in that city at the time. It was huge inequality. You had incredible influence and wealthy people in the center of kind of a lot of this British empire and stuff that was going on. But on the other hand, you had incredible deprivation and addiction on the streets of London. He described it like this. He said, London was a squalid labyrinth with half a million people, 290 to every single acre. Every fifth house was a gin shop. And most had special steps even to help even the tiniest children reach the counter so they could buy gin for themselves. That was the level of what British society was like at that point. And as he looked out on London, his heart like bled for the people of London. And so he went on with some friends to start these first missions. And in the missions, he spoke about salvation and redemption and forgiveness. But he also took people through a story of getting them off alcohol getting them out of the gutter, giving them skills and training and accommodation. Those first missions became known as the Salvation Army. And through William Boo's ministry, millions and millions of people have been transformed. Their lives have been turned around, both through the good news of Jesus and also the practical help that it takes to change someone's life around whole cities it's been recognized, have been transformed by the work of the Salvation Army. But near the end of uh, William Booth's life, 
Someone said, well, what's the deal then? What's the secret? What's the secret source? How did you do it? And he said this. He said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than me. There have even with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and got a vision for what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power of salvation army, it is because, and listen to this, God has had all of the adoration of my heart and all of the power of my will and all of the influence of my life. Isn't that amazing? Right? God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. So I wonder this morning, does God have all the adoration of your heart? Does he have all the power of your will? And does he have all the influence of your life? I wonder this morning if it's time to stop running for the beaches of Spain and start to hear the call of the Lord to the places of brokenness and pain. But I think there's a second reason as well why Jonah runs, and don't worry, I've only got two. I think the other reason that Jonah runs, which we find out a little bit later, is which he says in, in chapter four, verse two, he says this, after the people do repent and get saved, he says this, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now God, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than it is to live. What's he saying? The second reason that Jonah ran is because he did not want to see God's salvation come to the Ninevites. He didn't want to see them find redemption and healing and forgiveness. What he wanted to see them get was a beating. And yet he knew that if he went and preached, even the worst, the worst of all the sermons, it's a, you'll see it in a few weeks' time, five-word sermon, absolutely useless. The whole city is completely transformed and they come to redemption. And he doesn't want it. He's like, no, thank you, God. They do not need salvation and repentance. They need a punch in the face. And I wonder if we see a little bit of Jonah there sometimes. God says, hey, I want to bring transformation to that person or that group of people who live in that way that you don't agree with or you don't understand or you don't believe is the right way to live. And then we're like, yeah, no thanks. No thanks. I don't want to forgive that person. I don't want to work on that relationship. I don't want to be generous with them. I hate them. I don't want to pray for them. They're my enemy. I don't want to serve them. That's not at all. And, and what we do is we create these lines. And we're like, God, yeah, I'll do anything, but I'm not doing that. Like, that is too far. That's too much. I'm not going back to them. I'm never going back to that church where those people are. I'm never opening myself up to those other people. I'm never giving generously to them because what if they waste it or they mess it or they do something really bad with it? I'm not trying again. It's too painful. It's just too difficult. It's too hard. And so we create not only just this line, but we create this whole circle and we're like, inside this, this is what God can do. 
Inside this, this is the kind of God that I believe in. I believe that he's warm and he's cuddly and he's fantastic and he's loving and I'm up for those kind of prophetic words which tell me that I'm going to be a millionaire one day and I'm like, I'm I'm all in for these kind of things but not out there. I don't want what's out there because what's out there is actually bad and those people don't need kindness. They need judgment and I am angry and, and I'm cross. And so what we believe is this kind of lie that out there is death. That in Nineveh, there is only death. And so we run and we run as far away from the dark, hard, difficult places and we run for the beaches of Spain. And we're like, yeah, fantastic, Lord. That's, that's where you are. But the truth is that running doesn't lead to life at all. Running leads Jonah to the belly of a whale. And Nineveh is the place where he sees the Holy Spirit bring salvation and revival to a city. And so I want to ask you just this very simple question this morning. Like, what's the Nineveh? Where is the specific area in your life where God is saying, I want, I want you, Ben, I want you to go. I want you to do that thing. I want you to be involved in that thing. And inwardly, we're like, God, eh, I don't think you could love me and ask me to do that. That doesn't sound right. When in fact, actually, God is calling you to that because he loves you, because he wants to show you something, because he wants to bring healing and transformation through you to the world around you. You see, God loves us as we are, but he also loves us much too much to leave us as we are, because he's got better things for us. You know, it's obedience to Jesus which brings us to a place of life. What is, it? What is Nineveh? Where are you trying to run from? And I know that Ninevehs can be complicated. They can be painful. They can be full of hurt and anguish and stuff that you've gone through and it's not easy. But the good news is this, is Jesus already went to Nineveh for you. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed this prayer, God, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to die. I don't want the pain. I don't want the suffering. I don't want all the things that I'm going to have to go through. But if it's your will, If that's what you want, I'm all in for you. And the wonderful and incredible thing of the good news of Jesus Christ is that when Jesus went to the cross, that wasn't the end of the story. Because then the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ was salvation. When we get to Nineveh, that's actually when we find the salvation. That's when we find the really good things. That God has amazing things for us, but they are not in the places all usually of comfort and safety and security, they are in the places. And so this morning, like, what does it mean not to run to Nineveh? What does it mean, run from Nineveh, but what does it mean to run toward those places that God has for our life? Because I believe that God has amazing things for us, incredible things for us. I believe as a community, like the best isn't even close to coming yet, we're just getting going. And that through us, lives might be transformed, city might be transformed, communities might be transformed, schools could be transformed. But I promise you, it's not going to be inside these kind of rooms. It's going to be when we take the good news of Jesus from these kind of rooms and we take them out to the places of brokenness in the city around us. Shall we pray?